I can't not promise that the cat won't make an appearance because that's his domain. He does lick his he does lick his penis constantly, so he's probably the most masculine of the house. Hello and welcome to The Blurry Bits. My name is Rob and I am a queer theatre maker. My pronouns are he and him. And I'm Charlie. I'm an actor and a writer. I'm queer and trans. My pronouns are they, them. Together we've made this podcast exploring masculinity with all its beautiful and brutal complex nuances. We've interviewed some of our favourite people to dive into the tricky questions around gender, queerness and class. We want to explore masculinity in all of its shapes and expressions. What's toxic about it? What's tender and vulnerable? When does masculinity feel good, feel sexy and useful? When does the patriarchy squash the good bits? What are the questions we haven't quite got the answers for? Where are the edges and what's in those blurry bits between the binaries? How's your masculinity feeling this week, Rob Watt? All right, I think. I don't, I, I haven't really been aware of it, if I'm being honest. Mm. Oh, no. I've been brilliantly aware of it, actually, because we would, I've been talking to some young people, um, about a program of work. And I've been having these really brilliant conversations around how young people don't have the space to talk about feminism, misogyny, sexual assault. I became really aware that I shouldn't be central to those conversations. Like I shouldn't be as, as an artistic director. God, I hate saying that. It sounds so weird as a, job title but as a, well just because the power dynamic of that I think is really weird in terms of the for me it's about listening and so I was really aware this week that there was a couple of um young people who we've just employed uh with the company I work for and they were talking about it and saying how important it was and I was absolutely agreeing thinking this is a you know I think if we can offer space for those conversations or creative exploration of, of those things. And that's great. But I then was, became very aware that I was, I was, uh, with the job title I had and with being a man, there was a, it felt a bit weird that I was driving a conversation. Mm. So we've, um, the executive director who's a woman is, uh, convening space for a couple of female artists and these young, young women to have a conversation about what we want to program. Great. That's really cool. So I was aware of the space that I was taking up mm-hmm. uh, and then sort of stepped myself away from it. Marvellous. I hope. What a wonderful... <laughs> I hope. I mean, that What a wonderful like- use of inherited power and privilege like to then go, oh, I have awareness about this and now I'm going to offer a space for someone else. I'm going to use my power to open up space for someone else. That's really cool. Does that mean I'm woke? I mean, I'm woke. <laughs> Do I get a badge? I don't know. I don't like that word. I hate that word. My, it makes my toes like <laughs> curl up. It makes my teeth furry. How's your masculinity this week? It's good, I think. I've been in tracksuit bottoms quite a lot this week and that's felt really fun. Definitely had the teenage lad gender this week. I've been out walking quite a lot in track trackies and a like baseball cap. It, in my hometown, you know, which is funny because like, I was, I mean, I left here when I was 17 and now I'm back here feeling like a 17 year old lad, which is kind of funny. That's been good and fun. And I'm like, I'm, I'm exploring movement a little bit more. And I finished this play of which, well, that's about masculinity. So that's been interesting to try and like find the tenderness and the kindness and the confusion of being a white cis hetero man that's also working class and therefore not really feeling like they've got privilege 
but they have. Do you know what I mean? I listened to a really good Brené Brown talk with Russell Brand, who I usually find a bit annoying, but he's quite good in this one. And they talk about power over, power with, power to, and power over. And that was interesting. Like power in terms of power with, power over. Power with, power to, and power over. So as an artistic director, your opening space for young women uh, was power to or power with. You used your power. You didn't power over. I see. Um, and I think when we're scared and we're placed in a position of leadership or authority or like when you're the boss of something, then and if you're scared that you're not good enough to be the boss of something and oh, it's a terrible mistake that I've been put in this position of leadership. Like a natural default position might be to uh, do like power over. Like Mm. I am the boss and I'm performing being a boss and I'm really scared that I'm not good enough. So I'm going to do it really like loud and hard. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Which I think happens a lot in leadership. Whereas in theatre, more often directors go, oh, I don't know what we're doing. Like... (laughs) That's Let's my work it. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's marvelous, really, because then it's like, oh, everyone can relax a bit. Like, let, and let, and you're trusting that the collective conscious is better than just you on yeah. your own. So that's like power with and like power to, which feels like a really cool idea. Cause when it, when it comes to masculinity and having this, like, especially today, cause I'm sore after the gym yesterday, I feel very powerful in my body today. Mm. And like, with with that dominance and that like masculine energy comes responsibility actually like how can i give power to others rather than power over others if that makes any sense yeah it makes perfect sense it's great mm. it was reminding me of that how um energy isn't can ever be created or destroyed it's only transferred so the idea of how oh, yeah. how you then can transfer your power your energy to the world is rather than holding it over and using it to destroy. Can you say that again? What's what's an example of like... For you to do what you did yesterday at the gym, you mm-hmm. had to eat food. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, the energy in, in, in that food was transferred into you and your body and then that processed it into your muscles so that you could do it. And mm-hmm. in order for the food to get that, it drew energy from the sun. So mm-hmm. energy can't ever be... The theory goes, like, I'm not a scientist, I don't know, (laughs) but from what I remember, energy cannot be destroyed or created. It can merely be transferred. Uh Uh-huh. That makes sense. So it's just recyclable. Yeah. All the time. Completely. I don't think I've spoken with such authority about science for such a long time. (laughs) (laughs) I quite liked it, though. It was good. It was making me think about, like, if I'm ever on stage again... (laughs) The idea of acting at the moment terrifies me. Like I can't, I was chatting yesterday to Karen, who was Juliet when we did Romeo and Juliet. And I suddenly was just remembering like, oh my God, like I did that. Like the idea of going on stage and like doing acting just seems so like, why would you do that? (laughs) Doing acting. I love it. I love the verb. I'm just doing some acting. Just doing some acting. (laughs) But it just seems so scary today, like to be looked at. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, dear, no. Oh, no. To be looked at when you're telling a story and stuff, I wonder if we're all going to be, like, really rusty when we go back to it. Maybe not. Maybe we'll just, like, really relish it and be like, oh, thank God we're back here doing this thing. Maybe. I do think it's like a muscle, though. I do think I do think actors need to, you know, there is about momentum, and some people will have lost momentum, I suppose. Yeah, it just seems like the most vulnerable thing. Oh, God, it is. I mean, I could never 
I thought I wanted to be an actor when I was when I was younger, but no way, I I couldn't do what you do at all. I don't think I could do what I do. <laughs> I'm, I'm hopefully I'll get. Hopefully, I almost got an acting job that would have been at a theatre, quite a big theatre, throughout this summer, and I didn't get it because um, someone much more brilliant and famous got it instead, which makes more sense. But. I was secretly a little bit relieved because I thought, I don't think I've got it in me. Like, <laughs> I feel a bit shy. Do you know what I mean at the minute? And yeah, I feel yeah. a bit like, I've been off stage for like nearly two years now. I, I don't know if I can do it. Yeah, you can. I'm, sh- I'm sure I'd be fine when, when it happens. But do you feel like that when you're, when you've got to go into rehearsals? I think this is exactly what actors do. What we all do is that you heighten up, you become a character. I sort of play the, the role of director. So I absolutely cack myself. With your latte and your scarf. Oh, yeah, yeah. And your <laughs> yeah. Always pen. the scarf, darling. <laughs> Good evening. Welcome. <laughs> Brilliant. In the presence of Mr. Watt, well done. <laughs> Bloody ridiculous. No, um, I usually walk in, fall over. No, <laughs> spill the latte. Oh, God, sorry. No, I, like, I, I hate first days of rehearsals. I think they're, they're the worst things ever. Everyone's so awkward. It's like the beginning of a party. Mm-hmm. And working out whether actually anyone wants to be at that party. And I realise I'm playing the wrong music or I've brought the wrong food. Um, mm. And it's just... Wearing the wrong clothes. Right, yeah. All, all, that, all that shit. And then yeah. and then we get over ourselves and we're all right. Yeah, yeah. In the majority. There have been rehearsal rooms <laughs> that have not been... Like have been terrible, terrible spaces. There's a whole, well, mm. talking about masculinity, actually, there's a, there's a really very, very quickly, because our first guest is going to be coming soon. Oh my gosh. Uh, I know, it's ridiculous. One of my first directing gigs was a two-hander and it was a, it was a, sh- it was a play essentially around 9-11 and how both these characters pretended that they had died in 9-11 to start Whoa. a new life. It's great. I mean, conceptually, really interesting. And it was about one man and one woman in this apartment and their decisions whether they phone their respective others to work out whether they to say that they're alive or not, or whether they just restart their lives. Mm-hmm. Older actors, slightly older actors, and the one of the the guy actors was um, I hadn't realised this when I auditioned was a Meisner actor, oh. and so decided just to be the character mm. so i wasn't able to ever speak to him as a fucking human uh, or as it, it was just about the character and the character was misogynistic essentially oh, so no. we just had a misogynist apparent misogynist absolutely in the rehearsal room at the time the the other actor she and i had just a fucking awful time trying to because he would just he would only speak to me a fucking nightmare oh no what a wally oh. like what's a terrible choice he must have halfway through the first day gone oh no i've made a mistake here this is not a kind but i'm gonna commit to it because that's what I'm, I'm just gonna do. commit <laughs> yeah oh it's ridiculous who's our first guest charlie our first guest is the wonderful daisy hale oh. they are one of my favorite humans and i'm a bit embarrassed to say this, but fuck it. They are one of my queer heroes. Yes. Um, they were so personally brilliant to me when I was coming out three years ago now. They were just marvellous. We met through the old Vic 12. They were the producer on the play that I'd written. They are the producer of Pex, the drag Love king Pex. show. Me too. They also do loads of other brilliant things with um, really cool queer artists. And they're just a wonderful human. Welcome, Daisy. It's amazing that you're here with us today. Um, 
Charlie described you as their queer hero, and I have described you as royalty. So I doff my cap. Uh, it is wonderful that you're here. Um, Daisy, I wonder whether you could introduce yourself. Who are you? Your pronouns? Anything that you think is uh, wonderful and relevant? Well, I'm uh, King Days, queer royalty. Um, I've actually never, ever heard anyone describe me as that. So that's a massive compliment. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm Daisy Hale. I'm a independent producer, cabaret maker, live events happener, general creative fiend around town. I primarily work with uh, queer, trans and disabled artists and the many intersections in between. I specialise in socially driven work and experimental work that generally has an activism strand to it as well. So a lot of the work I do has a bit of a grassroots element to it and then bringing it into the mainstream through like populist forms like cabaret uh, to, to get, you know, a wider audience to engage with sociopolitical issues, but in a fun way. Sick. What a wonderful job you have. Isn't that cool? So we've got some questions, uh, which just start us really for us, because we're sort of asking these questions of ourselves as well. Yeah, definitely. We want to uh, discuss masculinity, really. So I guess the first question is, what even is masculinity? Daisy Hale? That's a big question. Um, well, I think, you know, all, all gender, I think is, is performance. So all, so masculinity is performance, femininity is performance. You're just like deciding, you know, what, uh, spectrum of that you want to play on any given day. And for some people, it's really set in one place. And for some others, it's really fluid, whether they're aware of it or not. Um, and so masculinity for me is sort of, it, it's, for me, it's like partly a aesthetic thing, but it's like also like a fluid sort of soft thing. It's like, for me, it's like, how can I bring some tenderness out of that? Um, and I think, you know, a lot of people who like identify as men or masculine, don't often realize that they too are like victims of the patriarchy. Like they too are having to play up to a certain set of ideals. Um, And like masculinity, I think is often seen as like the neutral. Um, And so often we don't like interrogate why it's also a victim of patriarchy. Mm. Um, So masculinity is, complex i've never heard about it put like that that masculinity is thought of as the neutral i i understand i think what you mean but like can you talk about that a bit more in terms of like as in it's the starting place and then femininity is something that you reach for or yeah i think like the way i've sort of um the way i like observe that most is like so I produce Pex Drag Kings and like um, within Pex, we obviously we're being drag kings. We're, play, we're playing with masculinity. We're like uh, clowning with masculinity. And I think often the reaction that we get is like, uh, oh, a drag king, what's that? Do you just like wear trousers? And it's like, <laughs> well, 
and and I think that's why like people see that people take masculinity as this like neutral place like the starting place they don't see how it can also be like played with it can be brought to an extreme it can be brought to another extreme it can be soft it can be hard it can be tender it can be difficult it can be silly um and actually you can you can do you can do drag as of masculinity you can like play with masculinity um but it's it's funny isn't it that there's loads of drag queens so the idea of playing up femininity men playing femininity in a particular way but there is there isn't it isn't as you know there, there aren't as many drag king acts out there in in the same way there isn't you know drag uk uh, like you know um oh a terrible queer man that i am can't remember what it is drag race you know is all about men performing as women and that you know there it, it feels like there isn't a space where that is so popularist at the moment I don't know how you feel about that. Yeah, and I certainly think that um, there are just as many drag king acts out there. It's just not being given this mainstream populist place to exist in because I think people assume that people won't be interested in it. Um, And I can certainly, like, you know, protest that that's wrong, like considering the um, amount of interest that we have in our shows and the the, the feedback we get from shows and it's not just from women or non-binary people who are like you know aware of the patriarchy and who are consistently subjected to being aware of the patriarchy it's it's men as well who are who will come up to us after a show and go I didn't realize that masculinity is performative too like I didn't realize that I am playing my gender as well. I didn't realise that I too am a, a victim of the patriarchy. Mm, that's huge, isn't it? <laughs> it's quite fun when it happens. <laughs> yeah. I was just talking, I'm doing these like PT sessions with um, this uh, bloke. Sorry, that's the, there's, there's a boy on a motorbike that lives in my block of flats. He's just going to park his motorbike very loudly now. Performing that's, his that's masculine his... <laughs> motorbike <laughs> for you. Exactly. But, um, yeah, it's really funny. Uh, he, so yeah, this PT is like an absolute beefcake and has like really worked very hard and chiseled his body to like a very specific aesthetic that for him is obviously pleasing. And, and, and there's something about the way that he walks and the way that he moves and his whole lifestyle that for me clearly looks like a performance of sorts and whether he would see it as that or not. But it's really fascinating when, and maybe it's just because it's very heightened for him because he looks like an action man. Um, it's quite astonishing what he's done with his body. Do you know what I mean? But uh, it's it's interesting to that people that the the general uh, cultural view is that masculinity is not. We don't think of it as a performance when actually, of course, it is. Yeah. Um, and it can be just as nuanced as all of the different performances of femininity that you see in drag um and cabaret and other arts do you do you think daisy when when those men who have sort of had that paradigm shift watching your shows do you think the the is it is that like a wizard of oz moment where the curtain's been drawn back and they've sort of gone all oh, right so it doesn't mean that i don't need to be that performative i mean i mean i'm not suggesting that you've followed them and <laughs> worked out whether they've changed as men or not but do you think do you think the idea that if men were aware of the performative nature of masculinity that that would change this essence of masculinity or being men 
yeah, I think I think if it was because you know consistently through like pop culture or whatever, like women are performed or they performed as you know, or femininity is performed as hysterical, as soft, as all these different things. It's given all these different like stereotypes. People don't realize that like masculinity is that too. And I think that actually, if it was sort of um, if we had more nuance to masculinity in pop culture, then people would realise that it is a nuanced and performative thing and it can be many different things because it's not seen as like a base thing to be nuanced about that. Then that is where we get, that's where we fall into toxic masculinity and like what is toxic masculinity but a performance? Like, like you wouldn't have stereotypical toxic traits uh, unless they were performative aspects of what we see as masculinity. And also presumably because of patriarchy, right? Like white, cis, hetero man is seen as the default. So yeah. therefore masculinity must be seen as neutral as well. That must be playing into that somehow. Yeah, it's it's systemic in the same way that, you know, so many other things are systemic and seen as the, the neutral. Like that is that is all part of it. That it's it's just like it's how society has developed. What queerness and transness it does is is offer counterculture to that and that's when those things start to clash and that's when people start to disagree about it because systemically they are taught to see mas- to see uh, masculinity as um men being masculine as the neutral state you know that's obviously at odds with like thousands of people <laughs> When I internet stalked you, I saw on your Instagram that you identify as a non-binary big soft boy. And I just wondered like how that identity is feeling today, how you came to that. Because basically I want to ask you about your experience of gender in your own life and like when your masculinity feels fantastic and when it feels troublesome and, and how your work in cabaret and burlesque has opened things up for you. So yeah, like how, how, how are you doing outside of the gender <laughs> binary, my friend? What's going on? <laughs> oh, I feel like I should only talk to my therapist about this. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, it, it's it's feeling all right today. It, I guess that description of a non-binary big soft boy, like for me, I think my like gender identity, like hugely relates to my body. It hugely relates to my um, neurodiversity. It like and and when I say my body, I it relates to my my fatness as well, and fatness not being used as a negative term there, just as a description, because it's not a negative term. I think gender for me has always felt like something that sort of just floats above me, and it does it it it. I don't know, like it has always felt like a choice. I think like I've always. chosen to experiment with the spectrum of gender or like performative gender ever since I was little and even when I like wasn't really aware of it I I can remember like sitting in the car with my mom and going oh mom I, I, I really wish I was a boy and her going well you can be one when you're older and like she wasn't wrong. <laughs> and thinking about it, I'm like, actually, it was probably the best response she could have given because she didn't say no. She didn't say you can't be that. She just said you can be one when you're older, um, which gave, which was her giving me time and her also giving me choice, which is like, 
she probably wasn't even aware that she did it in that like the kindest way she could have done it, but she just did. Um, and so I think that that like choice has always felt available. And when I like realized that non-binary was a thing, it made everything sort of like about how my, my body is this like, you know, if you look at me in the street, I'm always read as, as woman because my body is curvy. I have a big chest. Like I will always be defaulted to woman. And so what I can do to mess with that is really important to me. And what I can do to make that soft and inviting and tender within like masculine aesthetic, like it's, I guess it's almost like, I don't really like the term androgyny, but it's almost my, my version of androgyny. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also, I like, obviously like non-binary people don't owe you androgyny in any way, but for someone who is consistently read as feminine, the fact that I can like play with that with clothes, with a binder, with my hair and make that like a, a, a big soft thing. Mm-hmm. It feels really nice. Mm. Yeah, you're smiling as you talk about it, like it seems playful. Yeah, like I'm, I am soft. I have very soft skin. I am, I have folds, and I have um, big bits to my body, and I have like really skinny long arms, which feel at odds with the rest of it. Like it's almost like I, I can turn my gender into this like soft own thing that feels only for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and special for myself and that just feels like this like <laughs> non, you know there's no binary big soft boy and like that is that is what makes me happy and I know that you know I know that some people take issue with the idea of using the term boy because they can see it as infantilizing uh, non-binary people but for me it's linked to the softness for me it's linked to experimentation for me it's linked to all of that like choice and spectrum and so um that's where it that's where it lands basically yeah I was thinking about that youngness that you just mentioned because I'm feeling like either a 200 year old whale at the moment like really wise and deep in the sea or I'm feeling like a 17 year old teenage lad in my tracksuit on my BMX bike but I'm like 30 I'm nearly 32 so why am I young do you know what I mean why why do I say lad like as a an actual chronological age that's younger than me but I think it's because I didn't get the opportunity to do it when I was actually that age so it feels nice to go back and explore it now it's interesting the age thing for me it feels playful but I can understand how others would see it as like infantilizing i also think there's that thing some people do that thing where they have their you know human age and they have their trans age and like Mm -hmm. they they they, and they they want to relive the things that they never got to do um when they were younger before they transitioned or before they decided they were non-binary or before they were closer to their their comfortable gender so i think it's you know it's nice to play in that space like Mm -hmm. It's comforting. It's a, it's a self-soothing thing. Can you talk to us about uh, burlesque and uh, cabaret and your experience with like quite a heightened performance of gender and then how that has affected your understanding of yourself like in real life? And when does it feel really fucking fantastic to like express either femininity or masculinity in those like extreme ways and in the really subtle ways 
I was thinking about this a bit yesterday and I like became actually quite like <laughs> overwhelmed with like I guess grief really because we haven't been in a lot of those spaces for so long now and every time I talk about queerness or gender at the moment it's either very theorizing or it's very like project based um rather than just like living you know in being in a really cramped sweaty dressing room at the back of the club with like six other drag things all putting their makeup on all having a nice time all sort of like you know and giving them the set list and saying oh you'll be on next and looking at who's arrived in the crowd and that like sweaty dancing like euphoria feeling like I miss that so much and I think that's when it feels at its best because it's like it's the ultimate counterculture to everything else outside of that room it's a like it's the ultimate safe space in quotation marks like it's the ultimate antithesis to what you might have been going through earlier on in the day I think that for me is the joy of cabaret and burlesque and you know I sit on a couple of different sides of that because I I produce drag kings and drag nights and parties, but I perform burlesque. And the burlesque for me, when I perform that, is it's a hard femme character. It's a hard femininity character, which is like joyful for me because it's something that I've never really been read, read as in my life. And it's a chance to be silly with that and also like play up to, you know, that character is like if I was Miranda Priestley in Devil Wears Prada, like that is that character. <laughs> but, uh, you know, as a, as a like stripping burlesque thing. Mm. Like, <laughs> is this Mama Hale? Yeah, Mama Hale. And, you know, that, even that name's a joke to me because that's what all my friends called my mum when I I was growing up and like she's not that character at all but it's just like a, it's like you know it, it's playing with all those different like references for me um so like there's that there's that one side of that which like empowers me in a way to just sort of be like this sort of unethical boss ass bitch producer business woman who's gonna like uh force you to look at her body and be like you know flip you off if you don't like it um and then and then there's and then there's like the like pex drag king's daddy like all of them call me dad like we're all playing with like masculinity in that room because they're all there being their different spectrum of masculinity and their kings and i'm like they're like queer dad like and that is so joyful and euphoric. And I think we all miss each other really, really, like, dearly at the moment. How do you think that, you know, you're talking about safe spaces and, you know, where there's loads of, unfortunately, lots of those queer spaces are disappearing. But how do you think lockdown has affected that, you know, that feeling of connectedness, that idea about going and being in a safe haven, the idea of being who you are in a space where there are others that either might look like you or you can just be? We just haven't had that through lockdown. How do you think that's affected our queer communities? You know, you've got the one side of it, which is like almost purely business where we're losing, we're losing spaces at a really drastic rate. And obviously lockdown is going to only have made that worse because they can't make money. You've got the other side of that where because these artists have always existed on the periphery, always existed in the underground, like have always had to make use of digital space, of outdoor space, of random like spaces that you wouldn't expect to see anything in. Like it's been really resourceful. Like people have really turned 
their practice to that. And I think theatre could learn a lot from it. <laughs> I think a lot of drag performers have really struggled. I think a lot of spaces have really struggled. And like that, that return to, to, to queer space is going to be really, really important. And I also like my biggest hope is that it means that we all just like turn out in force after we're, after this and when we're allowed and when it feels safe. Because, um, certainly as when I think that this like period of isolation has, has enabled other people to really like interrogate their sexuality, interrogate their gender. And a lot of people have come out in this time. Like, a lot of people have. You know, we noticed it in PECS. Like, we've had a lot more messages from people that we aren't, aren't our, like, regulars, like, aren't, aren't the usual names. You know, have you got a workshop on? Or have you, you know, when are you next performing? Are you doing anything online? Because I think people have been able to remove themselves from, ultimately from the male gaze, because they've been, like, in their houses and not exposed to necessarily the male gaze in their office, in their work environment, in the general, like, neutral sense of society and that's enabled a lot of people to realize things about themselves and so I'm actually really interested to see like <laughs> the new wave of queers come out <laughs> into the spaces when we're when we're finally allowed out again and I hope that we can like make it inviting and welcoming for them. And talking about the male gaze like, and having a kind of forced break from it as it were I've really noticed that within myself like I live alone and so how can I feel queer and trans and how can I feel sexy in myself when there is no gays? Like I'm literally on my own. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And and like therefore how much of my identity is a performance and how much of my sexuality is a performance. You know what I mean? That's been really interesting for me, being single and living alone and like how can I feel how can I express myself when no one's watching has been interesting. I wondered if you've got any thoughts on like in terms of storytelling and like the male gaze and like making work that isn't uh, that breaks those rules maybe or breaks those structures. What has the lockdown taught you if anything about that or like what are you excited about continuing when you go back to making work in rooms with artists? What are you excited about in terms of making work outside of that male gaze? Through like a queer lens or like a female gaze lens. Yeah, I think I think a lot of like certainly in Peck's work, we've always tried to establish what what would the female gaze be or what would the non-binary gaze be or the trans gaze be. What would that look like and how can we invert all those things that are seen as the male gaze that you know center the people that are usually the the subjects of that so that they can they can take joy in that mm-hmm. they can take joy in looking at someone else with their lens so that is like probably inherently not as damaging <laughs> establishing those spaces again is going to be really really exciting I mean we're making plans now and we're just like so eager and obviously just like waiting to get the green light I mean I'm just excited to be in 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 space with people again I've, I've I think I've been very like it's probably been a purposeful move I've always surrounded myself with people that don't subject me to that or I don't feel subject other people to that which is quite a like utopic utopic place to be in I guess I see it as like part of my work to keep making those spaces like it's something that I know frees people up and I think that can only be like a good thing to expose more people to that because it helps them to like figure things out about themselves Mm -hmm. I'll keep making those spaces as long as I can (laughs) please good (laughs) 
You you also talked about your neurodivergence, and I'm really interested about how that connects with your work and what that does. Does that shift the way that you make work? Is that does that is it is there particular ways in which you hold space? I think there's like two two layers to that there's like the fact that being neurodivergent means that I subscribe to a model of social disability where I understand that I can alter the environment to enable a person and that you know that is in that social model of disability that is about you know removing the systemic issues that disabled disabled people from accessing something I think that like base foundation law can be applied to all sorts of spaces like how can I enable people in this space through their queerness through their gender through their race how can I make this space more enabling I'm not sure that there's ever like a perfect version of that like what enables one person may disable another Certainly, that's something that I try to apply to my method methodology of working, regardless of whether I'm working with disabled people or not. The other layer of that, when I'm looking specifically into neurodivergence, and I work with an incredible um, cabaret troupe called Not Your Circus Dog, who create cabaret, like punk crip cabaret. And something I'm really interested in investigating more with that group is how do I re- how do I remove or how do I alter the neurotypical gaze in a space because I genuinely believe that one of our biggest like frontiers left in like performance is is um, about not pitying learning disabled people for their work just because their method of communication might be different to yours and so my next like big <laughs> project in my producing work Whenever I get to do that, I hope to start to figure out how can I remove the neurotypical gaze from projects that center neurodivergent people. And I feel like they're always like, you know, they're always interacting with each other, those thoughts. Like it's it's all, I think when you hold a lot of different identities, it's, you know, it's near impossible to make them all separate things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, they all sound like fluid and flowing into each other. Like I'm like, of co- of course you're doing that. Like that makes sense to me. Um, it feels very queer. Of course, <laughs> that's really cool. I'm just gonna queer every space I go into. Good. <laughs> <laughs> A big daisy stamp everywhere. Touch <laughs> things and they turn to rainbows. It's like. <laughs> <laughs> talk about class please (laughs) as you know this is one of my favorite topics because it's like a little chip on my shoulder really about class and queerness so daisy hale do you have any thoughts on how your class and queerness intersect uh because i have like a very specific understanding of gender through a working class background that feels at odds to be honest at times with the representation that i see of like non-binary people for example sometimes when talking about queerness it all feels a bit fucking middle class (laughs) and like where i grew up and we didn't have a lot of money and a lot of time there just wasn't these gorgeous expansive like moments to explore and express and and yet there kind of was playful running around in a muddy tracksuit moments so it just looked different I think and I'm always really interested in speaking to people about class when talking about their queerness uh, I just wonder if you've got any thoughts on that yeah I mean I think I think we've spoken about this before a little bit of like the examples of, of masculinity and how we could express our like our masculinity were very much that like running around in a tracksuit or like you know the guys down the pub or like the 
you know, a hyper masculinity, which feels very linked to a lot of working class identity as well. Yeah, I agree with you. Like the thing that I really struggled with when I came to London was that everyone talked about queerness like an academic. And I was like, my queerness isn't in a book. Like it's not, I don't know how to, and it's something I continue to struggle with. And like, I'm surrounded by extremely educated queer people. And, you know, I myself, you know, now, probably have transcended my class upbringing because of my education because of the people I hang around with which also feels uncomfortable like it feels like a gray space to be in because I still can't keep up with the with the academics and I can't and I can't like pretend that I'm still super working class because of like my lifestyle which I know is like a a, th- a whole other topic in itself is like when do you transcend the class that you were brought up in but um yeah, like I, that is the thing I struggled with the most when I when I came to the to these spaces here, where there was a lot of queerness available, which was at odds to sort of where I'd been at uni, where there was not so much queerness available. But everything felt very like <laughs> like you would then write an article about it, and like we needed to be really knowledgeable about these things. And I remember, like, I think one of the like conversations I first had with a friend of mine who had like gone to Cambridge and stuff and was queer and like you know talks like one of these people was like because they were talking about how the rainbow flag is you know it's like seen now as this sort of capitalist horrid ideal and like oh why should there be rainbow flags all around London which I do sort of like you know at pride and which is something I sort of do agree with now that I'm more sort of like knowledgeable about the the badness of capitalism mm-hmm. um but I was sort of like you know to me growing up that rainbow flag being displayed in Topshop or whatever was a symbol of like hope like it was something that was not around me and it was not in the like circles that I was walking in and so I I, I needed to see that because I needed to know that there was something somewhere and I and I I didn't have I didn't really know that much about theatre performance cabaret like I you know my first experience of of all of that was when I started going clubbing queerness to me grew up in the club scene it didn't grow up book I didn't like learn it from these educated individuals around me it like (laughs) seeped into me from a sweaty like vodka and coke doesn't it always (laughs) I mean (laughs) I love that. That's beautiful that it was like this sweaty osmosis from like lived experience rather than some like cerebral, oh, I'm going to read about something and then understand it in my head. You like understand it through your body. So my first job as a kid was in a barbershop and the women that ran that barbershop are probably what we would call now gender nonconforming. Their expression of gender is very not what um, society expects from women because they all day long are cutting the hair of like blokes and builders and like it's a hands-on they have to be rude fast like bawdy they are fierce they're they're just they're like these they're like these amazing drag queens really do you know what I mean like lots of makeup and big hair fierce aggressive kind of masculine energy and I grew up with that and yet they definitely wouldn't call themselves, you know, gender nonconforming. Like when they're drunk, they might be called like a bit of a geezer bird, for example. And like that, I think that was my first ex- experience of gender queerness really is, is things like geezer birds, but, and it's kind of a term of endearment, also an insult. Do you know what I mean? And like, 
being a masculine woman is seen as an insult at times. Do you know what I mean? Mm. There's something about masculinity in bodies that were not assigned male at birth that is seen as either like a silly thing that you'll grow out of at some point mm. or an ugly thing that needs to be met with uh, violence. And that particularly feels working class, I think. I, I remember growing up in a, this sort of small town in the Midlands and while I was sort of becoming aware of my sexuality or my queerness, the, the reference points I had was that, so there was a, a guy who he used he, him pronouns, as I remember, but was dragged up and walked down the high street. So he was the Panto Dame. And that pa- being a Panto Dame was also sort of held him in a particular way because lots of people went, oh, he does that on stage. It's sort of okay. But there was also a huge amount of uh, like he used to be called freak and he used to be called like there was all these sort of because of the the otherness of him walking down that high street which made me then fear it mm. Uh, mm. you know the otherness of that i so i was talking to charlie about this is that i'm really aware that i've lowered my voice um mm. and it's now just as it is but i i I remembered that there was those dulcet tones, perfect. For absolutely, <laughs> very much so. I do remember because thinking, well, what is it that I do to hide myself? So, and, and I think the performative element of that was was about safety for me. I wanted to dance. I wanted to wear loads of different types of clothes. I wanted to fucking touch things and rainbows happens. I wanted to be you, Daisy. You know, <laughs> but but seeing seeing those reference points, I stepped into a space of what I thought masculine was mm. in a space of safety right because my queerness was something that I was petrified of yeah yeah, yeah I, I feel I can somewhat relate to that in a sense of like actually I stepped into masculinity a lot younger than maybe other queer people my age because of the men I was around it made me their comrade rather than an object or mm. you know someone they wanted to sleep with like it like it made me there like I could do all the bro talk I could do all the like laddie stuff and that was something I feel like was like I feel like I stepped into toxic man- masculinity for a really long time within my queerness before I like realized how toxic it was and and, and shed shed those elements of myself and I think that that's something certainly I think we see I think we see it a lot in, in queer culture, particularly for people assigned female at birth. It's like, and I often think that does relate to to class. And I often think that it's like sneered at by other members of the queer community. But like, often you don't have a choice. Like it's part of survival in those spaces. And it will, yeah, it wasn't until I came to London and I could be like this, you know, you know, I've I've I grew up in the Midlands. I've lost my accent. You Same know, here. I, yeah, <laughs> lovely, like, great. Here we go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if I start, you know, if I start, I can I can slip back into it. Like, you know, I've I'm you know my my dad is like proper black country. Like, but I've you know I've assimilated it out so that I can appear cultured and also it feels like almost shedding that 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 skin a little bit of of um some of the more toxic environments mm. i think i like used to be in voices are so interesting when i'm out and about at a minute and i've got my mask on my coronavirus mask who knew that this part of my face by the way is feminine because i i get red as male as soon as it's weird isn't it it's like yeah. who yeah. who knew that that bit but i get a lot more I get a lot more, hey, bro, all right, bruv, um, all right, geese, when I go into 
like a shop and then and then I'm nervous to speak because I have this quite like high-pitched soft voice which I think might be a way of balancing out my masculinity I think I developed this as like a kid or something but like then I'm nervous to speak and then I won't say anything until I'm leaving and I go cheers (laughs) 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 because I'm like oh because if I do go hiya then they go oh sorry love and like then and then I'm like no you were sort of closer to it at the beginning to be honest but like it's just oh it's complicated so (laughs) Daisy I want to talk about plants my partner um, is very jealous that I'm speaking to you today because he's very green-fingered. Um, talk to me about plants. How, why? How are they important? Why are they important? What's What do you do? What's I mean, you're royalty because you... That's the third royalty we've spoken about today, but you were on Gardener's <laughs> World uh, this week, which is brilliant. Um, talk to us about plants. Yeah, I mean, I just like... I, just, I think it's come out of... I mean, I just... I have always loved all sort of natural things like I spent a really long time in my youth and teenagers thinking that I was going to be a marine biologist or a zoologist or one of them um and then I found out that I had a learning disability and that's why I kept failing my exams so um now I'm here in theatre um (laughs) welcome (laughs) <laughs> where, I need to, <laughs> where I don't need to spell things correctly. Exactly. Um, I think it sparked sparked from there, and also like spending time with like my nan in the garden and planting things, and her teaching me how they grow and things like that, and that being like a joyful thing. And I think it is a place of like it's a place of solace for me. Like it's it's really joyful to see things grow. It's really joyful to be able to make the environment that something needs to flourish um and I think my personal like um uh joy in which plants I collect is like it's all the weird ones like it's all the like ones that have got a really strange shape to them and that that's what that's what draws me to them and you've got a, a project East Finchley Jungle Project tell us about that basically in my local area um I live in Barnet and like there's a, um, a, a community project called Grangeburg Local, which is an estate area in East Finchley where I live. They do grants, like, and you can just apply for a little pot of money. And I sort of, through lockdown, obviously spent a lot of time in the garden, spent a lot of time with my plants, like have a lot more plants than I started off lockdown with. But I discovered that there was this whole online community for houseplants as well, where people would share tips and also do swaps and things like that. And so I started doing like plant swaps with people in the local area and met some really interesting people and, you know, realized that there were people who were going through like cancer treatment and like extreme isolation or um, loneliness and I sort of thought well East Finchley is surrounded with allotments that you know members of the community can use but not everyone's got an outdoor space so why don't I try and create an indoor community garden that people can you know have workshops from but also just like take something home and have Mm -hmm. that like greenery in there in their house so the project's embedded in um like a sheltered accommodation that's quite near nearby um with the elderly in their community hall they're like welcome to join in whenever they feel like they want to and the project is like focused on basically growing plants teaching people about them online at the moment and then me delivering 
uh, houseplants to anyone who falls within the estate, basically, who wants who wants to adopt a plant, basically. Amazing. That's so cool. What a lovely thing to be doing. It just feels that like, within your job and what you do, you, you're an enabler. You sort of nourish people and the idea of growing people. I think it's just such an amazing skill that you have of, mm. you know, you create the right environment for something, for someone, and then, and then you feed them with what they need and then they grow. I think it's, I think it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. So much joy. Yeah, I've never made that link before between like growing plants and producing. <laughs> it's, it's very similar. It is. Mm. I guess I just like to create joyful space. Like that is something that, you know, I see it within myself and everything that I like, like all the TV programs I like are about creating joyful space. Like, and I think, you know, why shouldn't, why shouldn't everyone get to experience that regardless of what identities they hold? You've, you've made, well, you've made this last hour a joy. So thank you so much. What's next? What, what do you hope when uh, everything's opens up? What are you doing? Well, I'm just hoping to, I'm just hoping to make joyful space when I get out of here. Like I'm so bored. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So yeah, I mean, you know, hopefully going to be, there are things in the pipeline for pecs certainly. So definitely some cabaret being transplanted into, into London sometime in the summer. And also, um, you know, Pex created a podcast as well. That's why I'm on, I'm on a podcast. Might as well plug a podcast um, called The Drag King Cast. Um, all, all eight episodes are out now to listen to, and we're starting to work on season two now as well. So um, good, do tune in. Good plug. Good plug. That was well rehearsed. I like it. <laughs> Um, amazing Daisy um, it's been an absolute joy thank you so much for joining us um, as our first ever episode on our podcast um, the first one. first one first yeah. one so we were rehearsing as well so thank you so much as I should royalty <laughs> <laughs> we bow to you we bow to you <laughs> thank you so much thank you so much The Blurry Bits was presented by Charlie Josephine and Rob Watt Sound design and editing was by Rob Watt. If you like the podcast, then please do subscribe. And uh, if you're up for it, give us a five-star review. Please find us on all socials at The Blurry Bits. See you next time.